0: Today's a bit of a change of pace. I want to begin by telling you a somewhat funny funeral story. And I realize it might sound like a bit of a contradiction, but uh, hopefully you enjoy the story nonetheless. And so basically as the story goes, a couple months ago, I was at one of our local funeral homes talking to the family of the deceased about the funeral liturgy, which was about to begin. And so I walked them through the technical aspects of the thing and the aftermath of which I kind of hung back and just kind of waited for the service to actually begin. So. I was kind of like a fly on the wall listening to their conversations. And one particular conversation which really struck me, um, basically the wife of the deceased was talking to the other family members about chocolate roses. And so essentially the plan was that once I was done the formal part of the liturgy, um, different family members, depending on if they want to or not, they would come up and then put a chocolate roses into the casket of the deceased. And I have to admit that for my part, my curiosity was kind of piqued. And so I went up to the wife of the deceased and I asked her, like, you know, basically what's the deal with these chocolate roses? And what she said to me was that her husband, the deceased, um, he really loved chocolate. I mean, he really loved sweet things in general, but he really loved chocolate, but he was a diabetic, right? And so obviously he had to be mindful of his sugar count. And so, you know, this idea of putting chocolate roses now into his coffin in the aftermath of his death, that was a way for the family to celebrate the fact that now their loved one was in heaven and now he could eat all the chocolate he wanted without worrying about the consequences. Now at this point, if I'm being honest, I have to admit that when she told me this story, my reaction, my initial reaction was probably the same reaction you're having right now. I was thinking to myself, that sounds kind of weird, right? Because I was picturing her husband sort of gorging on chocolate in the heavenly kingdom and and something seemed kind of weird about that. But by God's providence, it was kind of funny. Um, God kind of brought to my attention a certain parallel experience from my own life, actually so my mom's side of the family is really catholic right so she comes from a family of a lot of brothers and sisters including my uncle paul And my uncle paul is a really smart guy right so he's got his master's degree in engineering really accomplished really smart really career driven sort of guy right who also has sort of a salt of the earth sort of mentality when it comes to the faith and so i remember my mom telling me that once michael paul said to her i can't wait to go to heaven because when i go to heaven i can eat all the food that i want and not worry about getting fat And again, if I'm being honest, I got to admit that when I first heard the story about my uncle Paul, and in particular his image of the heavenly kingdom, my initial reaction was, that's kind of weird. That's kind of strange, you know? But now here's this memory of the story coming up again to my consciousness in light of this conversation about the diabetic who really loved chocolate. And it forced me to confront some really important questions, like what's my image of God? And more to the point, does God really care about these things? Does he really care about the diabetic who loves chocolate? Does he really care about my Uncle Paul who loves to eat but is just worried about things like cholesterol and getting fat? Well, funny enough, I think the answer to that last question, again, does God really care about these things, is, perhaps surprisingly, actually yes. And even though there are probably a whole bunch of different passages in the gospel we can cite to support this particular claim, I want to focus on two passages in the gospel in particular. First of all, the story of the wedding of Cana from the Gospel of John chapter 2. And so basically, as you probably know, as a matter of background, Jesus, his 12 disciples, and his Blessed Mother, they go to this wedding in the little town of Cana. When the Blessed Mother realizes that the couple is running dangerously low on wine, which would have been this massive social embarrassment. So she turns to her son, and her son performs his first miracle, right? He turns the water into wine. And obviously, this is really, really significant from a theological perspective. It marks the beginning of Christ's public life, the beginning of his public ministry, the inauguration, if you will, of the Messianic Age. And on top of that, it's a thing which sets the clock in motion, right? And so Jesus Christ, as a result of this first miracle, he is that much closer to his own suffering and death on the cross. And on top of that, his already limited time with his Blessed Mother is cut short all the more because of this first miracle that he does in the context of the wedding of Cana. Okay, now that said, the thing I want to draw your attention to is the particular reason why Jesus Christ does the miracle to begin with. And so, certainly he does it because his mother asks him to, so hopefully it goes without saying. But it's also important to note that he doesn't do it simply for the salvation of the world. I mean, Jesus Christ was always going to suffer and die for the salvation of the world, so it's not a question of that. The reason why he does this miracle, the reason why he moves up the timeline in terms of his own suffering and death on the cross, in terms of cutting down his already limited time with his own blessed mother, is because otherwise the couple in question, the couple that's getting married, would be sad. Otherwise, this couple would have their wedding completely ruined because, again, they would have run out of wine. That would have been a social humiliation. For this reason, to help out this couple that remains to this day nameless and faceless, The lord does this miracle and again sets things in motion and the whole point is that's how much jesus cares that's how much god cares god cares about the details even something as seemingly insignificant as this couple and their wedding Okay, so that's kind of the first example. But the second example is taken from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, the really famous story of the transfiguration. So you probably know how the story goes, right? So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of this mountain where he is transfigured, right? So his face changes, his clothes become dazzling white, and basically appearing next to him are Moses and Elijah, two great figures from the Old Testament. Now, from a strictly theological perspective, one might say that the great significance of the Transfiguration is that it reveals basically who Jesus is, right, in the context of salvation history. He is the long-awaited Messiah in whom, in his very person, is the coming together of the Law and the Prophets, represented respectively by Moses and Elijah. Okay, but you know, that said, perhaps we might say that a more grounded and relevant way to interpret this particular passage, again, the story of the Transfiguration, is to simply say that Jesus was just worried He was just worried about his friends. He was concerned for the disciples. Because, of course, what's around the corner? Just around the corner is the crucifixion. The shepherd will be struck down before the flock. He will be seemingly destroyed by the forces of evil, as a result of which the disciples will be scared. They'll be scandalized. They'll be tempted to give up the entire project altogether. And what's interesting is that Jesus is aware of this, and he does something about it, right? So he doesn't give them simply a military speech, some variation of suck it up buttercup, but instead what he does, he gives them this beautiful experience of the transfiguration. He consoles them, he comforts them, he fortifies them for that which is to come. And the experience is so beautiful that Peter says openly, we should build a couple of tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Loosely translated, this experience is so beautiful, I want to stay here forever, right? That's the experience that the Lord gives to them because he cares so much about the pain they're about to suffer just around the corner. Okay, now at this point, perhaps it might be kind of helpful to clarify exactly why I'm spending so much time on this stuff, right? So again, just to be clear, the reason why I'm spending so much time going through these different examples and talking about these different things is to not simply suggest to you that don't worry, one day there's the heavenly reality. Like don't worry, one day there'll be a time where every tear we wiped away and all things we made new. I mean, I guess it's a good thing to know that heaven won't simply be this family reunion in this grassy meadow next to this babbling brook, but again, that's not really the point of the reflection. The point of the reflection is to invite you to expand your spiritual repertoire, in particular to expand your prayer routine to include prayers of lamentation. And you know, just to be clear, when I'm talking about prayers of lamentation, I'm not thinking about a set prayer in particular. So don't ask me for a prayer of lamentation at the end of this reflection, right? I'm thinking rather about a particular attitude in prayer where we have the courage and the wherewithal to come before our Father in heaven with our hopes and our dreams and our pains, and our frustrations and our vulnerabilities, trusting and believing that God, our Father, truly cares. He truly cares about all these things because he truly cares about us. Because you see, think of it like this, obviously a huge part of the Old Testament, a huge part of the Hebrew Scriptures are the Psalms, which include Psalms of Praise, Psalms of Thanksgiving, and Psalms of Lamentation. Psalms of Lamentation in the context of which the people of God cry out to the Lord in their need, again, expressing their vulnerabilities, their pains, the whole nine yards. And the whole point is this the very existence of the Lamentation Psalms shows us and teaches us that not only is it okay to cry to the Lord in this way, to cry a prayer of lament to the Lord, but on top of that, when we pray in this way, in a certain sense, it's sort of like standing on holy ground. Because the reality is that the prayer of lament, any prayer of lament, is the privileged space of encounter between the deep longings of the human heart and the great mercy of our Father in heaven. I'd like to end now with two examples from this really great talk by this Christian speaker named Melissa Helzer, who once spoke on the subject of of finding hope in seasons of disappointment. And so the first example is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. So you probably recall how this particular story goes. It's Holy Thursday. Jesus Christ is on his hands and knees. He's sweating blood. And he's saying to his father over and over again, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Thinking, of course, about his impending suffering and death on the will of the cross for the salvation of the world. And in her really great commentary on this particular passage, Melissa basically keys in on that recurring refrain that you find on the lips of our Lord, suggesting that basically what Jesus is saying to his Father in heaven in this particular context is some variation of, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way to bring about the salvation and redemption of the world apart from the crucifixion. Again, there's got to be another way. And you see, what's interesting is that in reflecting on the father's response to his son in this particular moment, Melissa suggests that probably what the father didn't say to his son was some variation of, well, Jesus, you know, we talked about this. Didn't you know that your whole point and purpose of coming to this earth was in fact to suffer and die for the salvation of the world? The father probably didn't say that. No, instead, Melissa suggests that probably what happened in that moment is that in a certain sense, the father also got down on his hands and knees and said to his son some variation of, I wish there was another way. I wish there was another way. Thereby embodying in a certain sense in that moment, the very definition of compassionate itself, which literally means to suffer with. Okay, so that's kind of the first example, but the second and final example i like to reference today involves the death of Melissa's family dog, whose name was Bella. So as the story goes, Bella apparently died while Melissa's son was away from the family home for a certain period of time, taking care of different things. But when he came back, he had this deep intuition that the family dog had actually died. So when he finally came home, he ran to the dead body of his dog, which at this point was covered with a blanket. And he ripped the blanket off, he put his hands on his dog, and he cried out to God over and over again for a period of 10 minutes. God, if you're a loving father, send breath into my dog. And again, this happened over and over again for a period of 10 minutes. And the way Melissa tells the story, her daughter was crying, her son obviously was crying, she was crying. And on top of that, she found herself praying to the Father in heaven over and over again. What do you want me to do? I mean, obviously, my son is in so much pain. Is there something I can do? What father do you want me to do? And what she felt was that the father was saying to her in response, don't do anything. I don't want you to do anything. Do not rob your son of this moment. Do not rob your son of this moment of lament where he's basically lamenting the death of his dog. And so in response, even though it was hard, Melissa basically consented to allowing this great drama to play out before her very eyes her children crying, her son crying out to the Father in heaven, she herself standing by helplessly. And so finally, after a period of, again, 10 minutes, her son stopped. He stopped crying, he stopped crying out, and he said, Look, God has a plan. Let's bury the dog. And you see, in telling you this story, the thing I want to suggest to you is that all that stuff, the crying, the weeping, the, the prayers of lament, none of it was wasted time. None of it was wasted time, but in a certain sense, all these things were necessary prerequisites for the family, and in particular the son, to be the recipient of God's loving mercy and tender compassion. And of course, the moral of the story is that so it goes with each one of us. And so going forward in the future, when you too find yourself crying a prayer of lament to our Father in Heaven, I don't pretend for a moment right now to know how the Lord's going to respond. But the only thing I want to reassure you of now is that the Father in Heaven is the one who cares about that diabetic, who simply wants to have a bite of chocolate. He is the one who cares about my Uncle Paul, who just loves the taste of food. And he is the one who truly cares about that little boy who just misses his dog. And you know, in light of all this, in light of this great reality of what God is like, what his heart is like, take courage and share with him everything. Your vulnerabilities, your hopes, your dreams, the deepest longings of your hearts And then wait and listen to what God has to say to you in response. And may God bless you all.